All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I am here with Georgie Fear, who has been on this podcast a few years back. Um, I think it was a good episode, although I was not really on top of my game as an interviewer back then. So hopefully I will be better this time. But uh, Georgie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. I've been uh, pretty busy, but you know how the, the time flies when you're busy. So that's pretty good. I know what you mean about how uh, like you hear your old interviews and you, you're like, oh man, I could have done so much better there. Or like, what the hell was with my mic technique? And mm. Yeah, the same thing happens when you write more than one book. You're just like, oh man, I hope people don't read the older ones. I hope they read the new one. Yeah, yeah. Although as the saying goes that if you don't look back at your old stuff a little bit embarrassed, it means you didn't improve. So I guess it's a good thing that now it seems a bit uh, cringy. Totally. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um so we have a few things to talk about here. Um, obviously, back then we talked about your book, which is super successful and is one of my personal favorites in the space, uh, Lean Habits. Um, and then you also published a new book recently, and then you have a podcast. And so I want to talk about all of those things. But first of all, how are you doing these days with uh, virus and all the weirdness in the world? It's uh, I'm, I'm doing well. So far, neither my husband or I has caught the coronavirus so we've been healthy that way um i've also personally just been doing super well i've had a lot of back pain and joint problems for oh, oh god since like 2011 2012 it was really holding me back in terms of what i can do mm-hmm. but uh, in 2018 we moved to the mountains in canada and just i started cross-country skiing and i got some more medical help and just my my pain has been so much reduced that i've been just blissfully running around the mountains and hiking and skiing and biking. I'm just so happy to, you know, finally be able to do stuff because there was just so many years when I couldn't work out like I wanted to. So yeah, I'm, I'm super active right now. No, that's, that's really awesome because I, I kind of recall you mentioning it on some podcast that I listened to with you that you had some pretty severe pain, like you at times couldn't even get up properly and now you're doing all of those cool things. So yeah. that, that's amazing. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So, um, all right. So how shall we start then? Um, the first thing, so we have a lot of different things uh, to talk about here because you kind of got into different things which you were not doing before. So you started your own podcast and you have the new book. But first, let's backtrack uh, for one second and let's talk about your older work, um, Lean Habits. Um, so you know, I, first of all, I just kind of want to say a bit of a, a compliment or something that I've been just meaning to say is that honestly, the reason why that book is one of my personal favorites is because I really feel like that is one of the few pieces of work that really bridges the gap between the um, sort of hardcore, very strictly results oriented approach, like let's count calories, track our macros. Uh, this is how you do things optimally, very much quantified and the sort of more kind of um, people-oriented, kind of more compassionate, more, I want to say, intuitive approach, even though that's not really the right term here. And I think you just did such a such an incredible job kind of bridge, bridging that gap. So first of all, I just want to say that I don't know if you have any thoughts on what I just said. Uh, have you heard this from other people as well? I don't know. Oh, I just want to say thank you. That means so much to me. Um, yeah, I really, I, that's the impression I would love people to get from my work. I'd like to think that I treat people like humans, and not like robots. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that they realize they can treat themselves with a lot more humanity instead of expecting themselves to be robots or to eat everything weighed and measured and perfect and completely divorced from their feelings and emotions and preferences for chocolate. You know, there's, you know, treat yourself like a whole human being. And it's it's not a wimpy, ineffective approach because it works really well. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I liked about the book is um, you kind of outlined that, okay, when it comes down to like breast hacks, then obviously it all comes down to a calorie deficit. If you're going to lose fat, it will have to happen with a calorie deficit. There is no way around it. But with these habits and with these simple kind of systems that you can implement, you can make that work without rigidly kind of controlling everything and putting your food on the scale and all of those things. So I think that's really cool. Um, actually, one thing I wanted to tell you is I remember back when we did that podcast at the end of 2016, I told you that, um, you know, the fitness circles that I'm, I'm moving around is very much like numbers focused. Calories and macros are put on a pedestal. If you don't, don't count them, you're not going to get great results. And 
actually there right right you're just wasting your time <laughs> yeah and actually a really awesome news that i have about that is there has been a large shift in the last like two years maybe where even some some of the most prominent natural bodybuilding coaches have started using more sort of habit-based approaches not for extreme goals like getting ready for a contest or something for a bodybuilder but you know during most of the year when they're not doing something extreme they are much more in favor of these approaches that you're outlining, for example, in your book. So I think that's a, that's a huge step forward for the industry. That's such such good news to hear. Yeah, yeah. So um, I had uh, like one question about uh, that book uh, in specific, and that is, you know, we went through the four kind of key habits, like there are much more outlined in your book, but the four key habits we went through in the previous episode that we did. So I recommend people to check that one out. But if you can think of um, like maybe one or two of those that you see as the most difficult or the most challenging for, for people to take on, uh, which which one would you say it would be? Uh, that is an easy, easy question. The most challenging habit, and it's also the one that gives people the most results, is chapter three in Lean Habits, and it's called Eating Just Enough. Mm. And yeah, do you remember that one, that chapter? Yeah, 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 of course. And it doesn't surprise me, but, but yeah, carry on. That is by far the one that people say they get stuck on, the one that they need many weeks to work on. And that's the one that I've done the most follow-up work on creating more supportive content in terms of, okay, if somebody's struggling with eating just enough, what can we do? How do we break it down? And I've developed some sub-skills for that. But um, just to overview people that aren't familiar with what I mean by eating just enough... The habit there is to develop the practice of feeling from your stomach and your body as a whole when you've reached satisfied on food and then stopping eating and not eating a margin beyond that. And of course, we can think there's various reasons that we would eat extra bites. Sometimes the food's really good and we just want more enjoyment. Mm. Or sometimes we're distracted and we may not even notice when we're satisfied. Or if we've always practiced you know, counting calories and weighing out things. And we've gone to the difficulty of logging the points in that food or the calories in that food mm -hmm. on my fitness pal. You bet your butt we're going to eat all of it because we don't want to screw up the log that we've so perfectly <laughs> created. So there's a lot of reasons that people might be ignoring the idea that they might be satisfied before they've actually cleaned their plates. Um, so that's that's eating just enough. And as I've helped people through it, you know, in the five years since Lean Habits has come out, we've identified some kind of stepping stones that many people can work on. So, for example, some of the stepping stones to eating just enough, one of them is eating more slowly. So if somebody's really struggling with eating just enough and they say, I just, I keep eating past satisfied. I eat until I'm quite full. Um, one of the things we can work on is like, okay, so for a moment, don't keep trying to eat just enough if it's not working. Instead, just focus on slowing down your intake. And don't worry about where you stop, just focus on the slower pace. And that can be a really helpful skill for people to develop. And then when they try to eat just enough again, they discover they've got more ability to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say some of the other kind of supportive skills that people have found are um, focusing a little bit more on the portion of food that they put in front of themselves. Because if you put a lot of food in front of yourself, it does make it a little more difficult to stop at eating just enough. Mm -hmm. Versus if you put an appropriate amount of food in front of yourself, it's easier to stop. And then another trick that we sometimes use is eating mindfully and paying more attention to your food and practicing chewing your food more, smelling it more, tasting it more. And some cognitive skills might also fall in there, like reminding yourself that there's more food to have later. Remind yourself that you can eat again in a few hours and that you will. So I have probably employed more psychological strategies over the last five years uh, to all of the all of the things I teach people. So there's a lot of that reflected and give yourself more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure people that listen to my podcasts regularly will know that this is one thing that I hammer home all the time, the mindfulness aspect. And honestly, um, mindfulness as in just not being distracted and actually paying attention to the act of eating. And of course, there are degrees to it. So maybe the most mindful of mindful eating would be to actually really paying, pay attention to whatever, chewing the food, smelling the food, how it tastes, how each bite feels, how you feel as your stomach kind of gets filled up. That would be like the most mindful, but even just not being actively distracted 
distracted by a screen or something. Oh, so true. Yeah. It's and honestly, I'm still to this day amazed how much of a difference that can make. And in general, I would like to think of myself as someone who mastered this to a decent degree. But every once in a while, I also get complacent. Like, yeah, I have this thing down. I don't have to. I mean, I, I can give myself a break. I can eat this meal while watching something on YouTube or whatever, a football game or something. And I'm always amazed how much of a difference it makes. And oftentimes, if I'm not eating mindfully, I kind of have that moment of looking up. And man, I put down so much food and <laughs> my stomach is so distended. Like, did I really need this? Um, so it is just incredibly powerful. Um, I have the, the same experience uh, if I distract myself. I tend to not eat until I'm over full because I think I've, I've kind of mastered the appropriate Georgie portion mm. size right now. So I know how much food feels about right. Um, and if I need a little more, a little less, I can make that adjustment. But I do notice that if I'm looking at my phone or scrolling for, did anybody leave me an Amazon book review or, or checking my email, I kind of look down at the bowl of, you know, yogurt and berries and cereal and be like, wow, my dessert is gone. Mm -hmm. And I barely noticed it. Like I, I got so little enjoyment from it because I was just putting it in my pie hole instead of, you know, tasting it with intention. And that seems like such a waste, such a loss of potential enjoyment. Yeah, I, I even recall in the book, uh, Mindless Eating, the, the authors quoting people about this and they said things like, you know, when I'm reading the newspaper or I'm listening to the morning radio show, I mean, that was, you know, older times, so it was not the time of podcasts, but more so radio shows and stuff. Uh, people said things like, I'm adjusting the length of my meal to fit the length of the show. So I'm finishing when the show finishes and things like that. And uh, yeah, I definitely see patterns like that with myself as well. Like, yeah, well, there's 50 minutes left from this video. Uh, this meal was over a little bit too soon. So do I get go back for more? Or if not, then it kind of sucks. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> ah, crazy, crazy. Um, so um, one, one kind of thing before uh, we transition over to kind of the theme of your, your podcast and, and also some of your book um, content eventually as well. Um, what do you think about the idea? And I'm asking this because I think authors like yourself that are more focused on habits and um, not strictly on like counting calories and things like that, I think it's easy to lump your work sometimes if people are not familiar with with it more kind of intricately together with approaches like you know intuitive eating and some of the books that were written on the topic of intuitive eating and um you know i think there are a lot of good work there's a lot of good work that came out on that topic in general but one idea that i see frequently popping up is that you know losing weight and striving to be leaner is inherently unhealthy and I would think that you're you don't agree with that. So, but have you seen this message kind of popping up? And like, what do you think about that? I definitely have. I definitely have. Um, I disagree with people who say trying to lose weight is unhealthy. I definitely I can understand where they, in some ways, I can understand where they come from in the sense that psychologically, it's definitely unhealthy to be putting yourself on a restricted diet where you can't eat foods that you really enjoy. It does cause psychological distress. Um, putting ourselves through the task of weighing and measuring food can create a sense of, oh, one false move and everything's ruined. Mm. And it, it just can limit our freedom. And a lot of people have said, like nobody says, you know, that diet, I was just so happy. It was the best. Mm -hmm. I just loved the sensation that if I had a ninth Blackberry, I was blowing it. <laughs> like nobody feels happy while we're doing these things. So I think psychologically, it's you know ne definitely not healthy. When people start to say that, um, you know, losing weight doesn't make people healthier. The science-based professional in me wants to raise my hand and say, yeah, but. Mm. Because we can't ignore the data that's been reliable and repeated that losing weight for somebody with excess weight decreases their risk for diabetes, decreases their risk for cardiovascular disease, decreases their risk for cancer. And I could just run through this whole long list that would be pointless. But it, it helps people live longer, healthier lives to lose excess weight. Yeah. And I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody that wants to trade data on that idea. Now, that doesn't mean that it's appropriate for everybody. You know, if somebody is a healthy weight, oftentimes it's cultural reasons that are trying to sell them the notion that being thinner, thinner than average, thinner than is required for health is somehow superior. And I fully agree with people who say, 
that's not doing anybody any good. There's no benefit from somebody who's a size six trying to be a size four. You know, if you're, and that's not me defining a size six as healthy, but I'm just saying like, healthy is as healthy does. And if you're taking good care of your body, if you're, if there's no medical reason to lose weight, I don't find people have greatly enhanced lives by focusing on weight loss. And definitely focusing on weight loss to the exclusion of somebody's mental health or physical health is a bad idea because that's another thing that can happen. People can decide that getting into that smaller size or getting that smaller waist or seeing that number on the scale is the most important thing in the world to them. And I think that's a, it's sad and it's sad because I've been there and I've been that person and I know what it's like to make your world that small that that's the most important thing in the world. And it means you're missing out on so many other things about you and about the world that are rich and important and fulfilling. Um, and it often comes with when people are making efforts to get to weight loss because it's the most important thing in the world, that usually means they're sacrificing things like their health and their relaxation and their happiness and their relationships with other people. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of my feeling on intuitive eating is that like many other like many other movements you can't summarize things into one sentence and i don't think intuitive eating is best summed up as weight loss is bad because i i really don't think that the originators of intuitive eating intended for that message i think what they were saying is there's more important good things to go after. Weight loss for the sake of weight loss is really pretty empty, but I, I do also see the merits of people wanting to lose excess weight. And if they have felt better and had better health parameters and faster running times and things that they want to get back from having you know reduced gravitational pull on their bodies, sometimes there are benefits to losing weight. So, you know, I certain, I guess what's coming out of my whole long-winded <laughs> discussion is some people are going to be happier if they lose weight and some people aren't and i think it's important to take into account the individual and the methods that they're considering yeah no i mean that's that's very well said and you know, also i think oftentimes when we talk about excess weight and wanting to be a bit leaner many times when we actually talk about someone who is over a healthy body fat percentage or a healthy weight the weight is almost like a a lagging measure or, or just a proxy for behaviors that are probably worth fixing. And if the behaviors are fixed, then often the weight is kind of going to take care of itself. Um, I mean, it, it is unlikely that someone has a perfectly healthy relationship with food, is in tune with hunger signals, fundamentally is eating whole foods and pays attention to, you know, eating their meals and picking foods in a reasonable manner and are still at an unhealthy weight. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but probably it is rare. And um, what I what I like to re remind people of and what I like to remind myself of as well is being lean won't make you happy, but being quote unquote, out of shape or being in much worse shape than you know you're capable of can increase unhappiness. Um, and probably the things that are making you unhappy about kind of not being in the shape you want is not necessarily the shape itself, but the behaviors that are contributing to that. I mean, you know, I have been at higher body fat percentages before because I was into the, oh, I'm, I'm a guy, I'm bulking, whatever, I want to get big. And of course, I wasn't unhappy because that was something I wanted to do. But when I kind of, quote unquote, fell off the wagon and, you know, I was finding myself mm -hmm. gravitating towards compulsive behaviors and that's how I gained lots of body fat, then that made me unhappy because I felt like I was out of control. So framing is a big part of this and just the subjective experience is a big part of this, uh, I guess. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said, especially about body fat being a proxy for other things. Mm -hmm. You know, many people will say that they fear gaining weight more than anything in the world. And that makes me wonder, like, what is it about the body fat for that person that is making them so frightened? Because it's it's it doesn't in any um, you know pure sense make a life worse to have a body that's slightly larger. It really doesn't. Um, and people can say, oh, but it's because other people treat me differently. Well, then that's because what that's really saying is 
your your fear then is that you want to be treated well by other people. And what's what's really neat is, of course, I help people eat healthier and move regularly, and that produces smaller bodies. But I also find it's really worth helping brush away some of those intense fears that if I don't lose weight, people won't like me. Or if I gain two pounds, my life is over. I think, you know, getting rid of some of those assumptions and stories that we tell ourselves, you know, opens the door to a lot greater happiness. And then when we feel like the stakes aren't so high, the pressure isn't crushing, we can actually just make better decisions. So yeah, I don't think weight gain is the worst thing in the world, but I also think that uh, losing weight isn't the worst thing in the world or an evil pursuit. It often can feel really, really good to take good care of ourselves. Um, and again, that doesn't come from the weight change itself. It comes from framing our lives differently and the choices we make. And when we do things that make us feel good, we feel good. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's almost like, I don't know, if um, if you ask a teenager who has tons of problems with acne because they're going through puberty or whatever, um, maybe they will say that getting acne again is their worst fear because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went through that when I was 13 years old. Like whatever I did, no matter how many times I washed my face with some alcoholic thing, I still had acne, so probably in, the, in that context, it was frightening. Now, when I'm much older, yeah, if I eat too much chocolate or whatever, I might get some pimples or whatever, but they will go away quickly, so it's not something that's frightening. So I guess when someone associates uh, gaining weight with just a really huge uphill battle, it's this is not something I have control over. So once that weight is on, it's going to stay on unless I kill myself uh, with some crazy diet, uh, then I guess it's really frightening. But anyway, um, let's, let's, uh, let's uh, move on to a couple of the follow-up points that I had here because uh, I want to go through some stuff here. So uh, your podcast, which is uh, relatively new, is called uh, Breaking Up With Binge Eating. Is that correct? It is. It is. We started um, late summer 2019, so not quite a year old yet, but... Uh, we're doing pretty well. We've got, I want to say, about 110,000 downloads. So we're, we're, we're pretty excited about that. We didn't think it would go anywhere. So <laughs> it's a fun experiment that people seem to really like. So I guess we're continuing it. Damn. Yeah, that's a real, that's really amazing. So um, so when um, when have you or when, when did the idea occur that you should dedicate a podcast specifically to this topic? Uh, is this something that you have seen in your practice popping up um a long time ago, or you see it frequently. So, um, yeah, what made you interested in starting that themed of a podcast? Well, people have been saying to me for years that they wanted a podcast. And I was like, no, I guessed on other people's podcasts. I don't need to do my own. I, my, my time is very deliberately put into various buckets already. And what's near and dear to my heart is working with my clients one-on-one. -on -one. I don't want to become somebody who just talks and writes and doesn't actually work with clients. So the vast majority of my working hours are on the phone with my clients or on email with my clients. So with the time that's left, you know, I imagined being guests on other people's podcasts would take up most of the time. And then I also write some blog articles and I kind of felt like my time was spoken for. So it wasn't a super high priority. But once we started doing more coaching specifically for emotional eating and binge eating, I recognized that this was a new topic that I wasn't previously putting out as much material on. You know, I had written a lot of obviously books and articles and blog posts about weight loss behaviors, but it was nice to begin that coaching program that we did, which was in response to people asking for it, a program just to help people stop binge eating or emotional eating. And because we run that in a closed private Facebook group, it was like, oh, well, it feels kind of kind of bad to only be helping a few dozen people when the lessons that we're talking about probably could benefit a lot of people. So that was when I first was thinking like, oh, I do want to get this stuff out there. Um, and then I had somebody I really respect, Sonia Simone. I'm not sure if you know her, but she is somebody I look up to. Her her writing and her podcast are just and her her person is exceptional. And so she said, I really think it would be a good idea. You know, she talks, right? I really think it'd be a good idea for you to consider a podcast. And her opinion holds a lot of weight with me. And so I, I think I, I started thinking about it really heavily after she mentioned that. And I said, yeah, we've got the fodder already. We've got these lessons that we're doing in, you know, a six month curriculum in this closed group. Let's start running through the same topics on a podcast. And so I I started with an initial batch of 25 or 30 
episodes that I wrote based on the lessons that we were doing and the discussions we were having in the Facebook group. And I figure, well, we're going to know by the time we finish those, you know, pre-written ones if we want to continue it or not. And yeah, it just keeps growing and people are writing to me and telling me that they appreciate it and that they find help help in it. So yeah, now it's now it's a weekly thing and I seem to have not found too much time to write or blog anymore. But the podcast is something I'm putting time into. So, you know, you can only do so many things at once. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's pretty brave as well uh, to dedicate um, a podcast to that topic specifically because obviously it is a very sensitive topic. Um, it's not it's not something you can just talk about casually. So you kind of have to kind of have to um, be careful with how you're addressing it. But I think you're doing an awesome job with it. And um, so I'm interested Obviously, at this point, you have communicated with a lot of people that have problems with emotional eating, binge eating. I am communicating with a lot of people who have those problems, and I'm interested in your experience uh, out of the people that you have um, come in contact with on that problem. What do you typically see um, as sort of the the trigger, not the trigger, but sort of a, a common denominator amongst these people? Is it more so a... Um, maybe, maybe more so f- a problem that can be induced uh, psycho- uh, physiologically, maybe just excessive dieting history. Maybe they were restricted for a long time. Does it have more so to do with um, psychological factors, lifestyle factors? Um, or are there some commonalities that you see uh, in relation to this uh, issue? That's a great question. It's something I think about and talk about with Mary Claire. Um, Mary Claire Brescia is my co-coach. Um, we run the binge eating programs together mm-hmm. and we also do the podcast together. And we talk a lot about, you know, what do these people have in common? What are the things we can help them with? And obviously when you're doing a group coaching program, those are some of the really helpful questions. Like what do the most people need rather than picking apart each individual? And so some of the the commonalities between many people who suffer from binge eating or compulsive eating or emotional eating is that there can be a physical contributor, and there often is. Often people will, when people come to us, we have them fill out an assessment and we ask them questions, we get to know them. And some of the things that I'm trying to learn about each person is what proportion of their binge eating difficulty is being perpetuated by physical restriction. Because we do know that if you take somebody and restrict food, that binge eating is more likely. Animals will even do it. Um, And that is something that is very, very common. Because typically when people have struggled with this disorder, they've gained weight. They're not happy with that. So they want to lose weight. And society says you want to lose weight, you diet. And so they develop a bit of a pendulum where, or people describe it as a cycle best, where you restrict your food, you get overly hungry, then you binge eat, then you feel ashamed, and then you restrict your food and you just keep going around and around. So physically, that tends to put a person in periods which may last hours or days of energy restriction, where their body is saying, give me more fuel, I'm not happy with this. And their brain is saying, no, 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 we can't do that. I'm not going to eat enough to maintain, I want to lose. And then eventually the brain gives way and the body wins. And food is eaten in large amounts and often really rapidly. And then the brain is like, see, we couldn't do that. We have to diet. And so they kind of go back around. So for almost everybody, there's some element of restriction going on. And that can range from being a really small contributor or it can be a really significant contributor. So so that's one factor. I can't really quantify it, but it's, it's present for many people. Um, the psychological perpetuation of binge eating is pretty much universal. I'm, I'm not going to say that there's not a person out there who's got 0% psychological involvement. I have not met one yet in you know more than a decade of doing this. So the psychological thing <laughs> that goes on with binge eating is that we tend to learn, you know, from the very first time that we engage in this behavior, that eating emotionally or binge eating or compulsively grabbing something gives us an element of numbing or that it gives us a bit of separation from some sort of pain that was bothering us. And it doesn't have to be a dramatic psychological pain because many people will discover they binge eat because they're bored. And so it's not... Um, and the binge eating might cause them a great amount of distress. And so they say, "Why boredom isn't so bad. Why do I binge eat when I was just bored and then feel worse? 
But what's often happened is that if we rewind somebody's history and we say, what makes somebody start binge eating? It's usually a really intense stressor, typically emotionally or mentally. And often there's physical stress as well from having got, um, been put on a diet or something in their youth. So they hit this like psychological breaking point, very, very high level distress. They don't know what to do. They're desperate. They come into possession of food, they eat lots of it, and they start to realize, wow, okay, that made something hurt less. And so over time, they may have future stresses and difficulties and upsets in their life, but maybe it's not 9 out of 10. Maybe it's only 8 out of 10, but they don't know what else to do, so they find food. Like, that helped last time, that'll help this time. And so they end up binge eating for something that wasn't so extreme. And if you continue the pattern where we're not using other strategies to deal with emotional distress, then we can end up binging for fours and fives and twos. And like the smallest little thing can make us go, oh, I can't handle this. I got to go. Got to go get food to numb it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so people can often see that in themselves when we describe it like, yeah, it used to be rarer, but now it's become more and more frequent and cause more and more distress and weight gain. So th the two kind of sides of binge eating disorder or a very strong emotional eating habit uh, are not very different. And it involves making sure that we start with physically making sure somebody's getting enough food so that their body isn't in a calorie shortage. So we try and get people to just maintain their weight and for the six months of the program, not insist on trying to lose weight. Because if you're trying to lose weight and trying to stop binge eating, it's kind of like pushing the gas and the brake at the same time. Mm. It, it's just not as effective. So try to not think of a calorie deficit, but just meeting your needs. Now, that's something we can usually do very fairly early, and then that leaves the bigger problem um, where we have many different pieces of the solution to talk about what do we do with all these emotions? What do we do with our uncertainty if we're not going to turn to food? What are we going to do with our happiness? What are we going to do with our sadness? What do we do when we feel depressed? What do we do when, you know? So there's so, like, if you think about the spectrum of human emotion, it's like the spectrum of colors. There's just infinite ways that we can look at all these different things. And we sort of, over the six months, introduce more and more skills to help make people confident that they can handle life, that they can handle their life with all of its imperfections and difficult people and stressful jobs without needing to binge. Mm. Whenever I talk about this topic with someone, I just cannot help but be amazed by how much of this is partly just an evolutionary wiring, probably. Like you said, even animals do it. Yeah. Um, if someone didn't get to eat for a long time, they will eat a lot of food at one sitting because that's just the natural instinct. I mean, hunter-gatherer societies that are otherwise very healthy, lean, physically active people when they find a large source of calories like honey or meat or anything like that, like they will engage in a behavior which we would classify as binge eating behavior. And, and um, that's just the most logical way of interacting with food in that environment. Because if you didn't, you just ate, you know, just enough, right, as you outlined in your book, mm -hmm. then, you know, they could risk starving to death. And essentially, yes. when <laughs> someone is perpetually dieting, essentially, what they're teaching their body is, well, I'm in this hunter gatherer environment, I don't have food, so I better better eat all of it right now because who knows when I will get to eat it the next time. Um, so I just find that element of it um, fascinating. Now, I'm really glad that you addressed the concept of kind of a weight-neutral approach at first. And I was wondering, um, because actually when I mentioned in my Facebook group that uh, we will be chatting and this will be the one of the topics that we discuss, uh, one person asked, like, is it possible to fix this issue while getting lean as well and losing weight and uh, you kind of just answered that but do you find a lot of resistance with the clients that you're working with like people who kind of want to get their cake and eat, eat it too like okay I want to fix this binge eating issue and I want to get lean at the same time absolutely and I completely understand the resistance because people are often feeling with a great degree of urgency that they want to lose weight um, and working on their emotional skills, etc., takes time and people don't want to wait. They're like, no, I just want to get to the weight loss part. But if you have binge eating as part of your 
um, proclivities, if, if, if it's a problem for you and you try and lose weight, it's going to get in your way mm-hmm. because you'll create a calorie deficit. But if you have not fixed the emotional issues and then the calorie deficit just adds in more challenge, you still have the same factors that caused you to binge before. And now you're just enhancing them by making yourself hungrier and more deprived. And a calorie deficit makes our brains even more trained to notice food stimuli in our environment. So you're just making it so you're not going to succeed at weight loss because you're likely to keep binging and you're not likely to be able to break your binging habit because you keep putting yourself into a calorie deficit, which makes you binge. So you don't effectively get either goal if you try and go about them both at the same time. And the best way that I try and describe that to people, because I feel like I understand their desire to lose weight and you can just start losing weight, you know, right away for people that don't have binge eating. But if it's, if it's a habit you have, it's going to, you have to fix that first. It doesn't mean you have to put weight loss off forever. You can absolutely eventually lose weight, but you have to heal this thing first. So I often talk about it like if you're a runner and you love running, you just want to run faster and further and it's like so important to you and you break your foot and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you'll be able to run again. You'll be able to run fast and far, but I have to put a cast on your foot right now. And for the next 12 weeks, there's no running. And you're like, no, 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 you can't put a cast on my foot. I want to run. And the doctor's saying, you will, but you have to heal this first. That's the sort of dilemma that, you know, I think us coaches sometimes feel like we're trying to we're trying to communicate that idea to people that we want you to be running. We want you to be losing weight. We want you to be feeling healthy and happy in your body. But you have to do this work first or you won't ever get to the end point. Because if you just keep trying to run on a broken foot day after day after day, you just keep injuring it. And then you don't get to run and you don't get a healthy foot. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Um, I was just thinking of one analogy uh, myself before you mentioned this. uh, But yours is much more practical than the one I came up with. Um, I I would be curious, like, do you see any sort of um, time frame that people need to spend in this healing phase before they are ready to give it a go? to the whole, um, you know, uh, calorie deficit and getting lean endeavor? I try not to put a hard date on it because if I said it took 39 days, people would be setting their watches for the 39th day and the 39th day they'd be like, okay, nothing but celery and chicken breast and it would be terrible. So, <laughs> and let's have a binge I, before <laughs> because yes, my diet starts tomorrow. Exactly. That's what happens. As soon as we start feeling restricted – the mental hoopla starts and that makes us go, just binge one more time because you're not going to be able to do it forever. So you might as well just do it now. Yeah. What's one last one? Um, and that's something that, you know, how many times have people told themselves just one last time? Mm. So we don't want to have that. So what we recommend or what we tell people is, you know, by the end of the six weeks or sorry, at the end of six months, we're going to have given you many skills which are going to move you closer to the way that you want to eat for a calorie deficit. You may be losing weight at the end of six months, but you will definitely be in a better spot to lose weight. So what we do is we encourage people at the beginning of the program to not really worry about their weight and definitely not to try and create a calorie deficit. We try and focus on not binging. And sometimes people will point out, won't I lose weight if I stop binging? And the truth is quite likely, you know, if you take out a 6,000 calorie binge two times a week, you're saving a lot of calories. But so we try and get people just maintain your weight. Just don't binge. Do what you got to do. Eat the snacks, eat the meals, eat until you're satisfied. Just don't binge. Eat cake with your dinner. Eat treats. That's fine. We just don't want to binge. So we're very focused on not binging. And then we start to include skills as we go through the healing process. Like to, to go back to the leg analogy. Sometimes the doctor may take off the cast and put on a walking cast or a boot or a brace because you can handle a little more, right? You can't maybe run on it, but you can, you're, you're, you've developed some skills by a few weeks in, and so you can handle a little bit. So we'll start exploring things like, what would it be like to try feeling hungry once a day for five minutes? Can If we have not been feeling hunger before then, that's a step. And it's one of the steps that moves people closer to the skills that they will practice if they want to lose weight. But it's not a huge, tremendous sacrifice. It's gentle. And so maybe once a day, if people feel open to it, they can experiment with trying to feel hunger. And we try and frame things in a positive sense that we're giving ourselves this opportunity or practicing this ability to strengthen ourselves. It's 
as far removed as we can possibly make it from the idea that like, okay, here's where we start suffering so we can shed those pounds. It's not about suffering. It's about developing some more skills that maybe aren't very strong right now. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. hundred percent. It's, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy to me. Um, you know, just this conversation, because I'm sure that a lot of people that are, you know, considering themselves to be like more hardcore and, you know, they pride themselves on their discipline and, um, have very ambitious body comp goals. Usually maybe they only tune into my podcasts when it's all about like getting shredded and whatever jacked and they've tuned out already. <laughs> yeah, it could be, could be, <laughs> but, uh, but if you're still tuned in, like, I just want to say like, maybe you're cringing at the idea of uh, what Georgie just said, eat cake with your dinner. Just don't binge. Like you might hear that and see that as uh, accepting weakness or just uh, being a wuss, like come on, man up, like you can do better than that. But you have to consider like, especially in the fitness industry. And I, I, I would say there's no correlation, like just because someone has hardcore goals, they are equally susceptible to this even more so at times. Like we are talking about people who have binges on a weekly basis, sometimes, you know, two, three times that are not like a 500 calorie overeating. We're talking about you know, thousands upon thousands of calories, like you mentioned a 6,000 calorie binge, you know, I, I mean, it's not uncommon for people to have like, you know, 10, 12,000 calorie binges. So, I mean, if you, we consider the damage you can create with that, I mean, you know, are, are you really that much better off than someone who has like cake with their dinner every night, but is not binging just like maybe slightly overeating uh, regularly because of those higher calorie items. So I think, an approach like this temporarily very much has a place. So yeah, I just want to acknowledge that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we talk about binge eating or emotional eating or compulsive eating, of course, there's going to be people that go, that's not my problem. I love my fitness pal. I love weighing and measuring my food. Like, that's great. I'm super happy that this is not a struggle that has affected them. But, you know, good for you. I'm helping people for whom this is a very real struggle. And it, it doesn't do anybody any good to, you know, think that uh, a food pattern uh, that anyone's developed is somewhat shameful. I mean, it's just food. We're not talking like crimes here or doing terrible things. Like We're just talking about the foods that we choose to eat. And I definitely don't think a piece of cake is a shameful thing. I think cake is a wonderful, delicious thing. I happen to choose chocolate over fruity flavored cakes. Um, so I would say chocolate is the superior type of cake. But yeah, I think we should talk about all foods just like we should talk about all races and all genders. And it's, it's, I don't think that we have to, you know, pretend that it's not okay to eat cake. I think if we lived soaking in a food environment that said, yeah, carrots are delicious and they're brightly colored and fun and bread is fantastic and milk can be like just a wonderful drink. I love the crunch of it with cereal. And we just saw positive things in all types of food, including chocolate, including sugar. Like, is it nutritious? No. <laughs> is it tasty? Yes. And, you know, we can choose foods for their nutrient value, or we can choose them for the meaning they have to us, or we can choose them because we really, really enjoy the taste. I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about these things. There's nothing wrong with having treats, with having low nutrition foods just because we enjoy them. Like, And shaming people or shaming ourselves into thinking we should never eat low nutrition foods because that's just so wrong is one of the factors that often coincides with people eating those foods in uncontrolled amounts. So better to you know sit down and enjoy a piece of cake every day and feel good about it rather than tell yourself negative things about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, one kind of last question I, I have on this, because uh, we're slowly uh, coming up on time here is um, obviously, so there is the physical aspect of this, then there is the emotional aspect of this. And that is um, people who learn to kind of drown everything with food. And I really actually liked the way you framed it, kind of a numbness that they feel while binging. It's um, it is pretty crazy as well, because obviously nobody feels good after the binge, but obviously the binging, the act of binging has some euphoric sensation associated with it. Uh, otherwise, people wouldn't seek that feeling out. They would, I don't know, just meditate or stare at a wall or something. I guess you could feel numb doing that as well. Um, so I guess it's almost um, sort of a cognitive behavioral therapy-esque approach, kind of rewiring those patterns into or channeling them into different behaviors. Um, so 
which one do you typically find more difficult sort of uh, getting people the or getting people to buy into the idea that okay this is a time when we are going to heal not trying to focus on getting lean or actually rewiring these kind of behavioral patterns hmm that's a good question i think it's tough for me to say that one is a, a bigger obstacle than the other I think it's normal for people to have some trepidation or doubt or hesitation for both of them. So um, my personal kind of approach for how we, and, and Mary Claire as well, I know I can speak for both of us here, for how we sort of help people with their resistance is we don't push harder because I feel like that's somewhat disrespectful and it's ineffective. I mean, telling somebody, you have to give up on weight loss to do this program, otherwise you're out. <laughs> like that's just not our style. You know, we try and explain why we feel like it's beneficial to focus on really putting all your efforts into what is a very challenging task of living without binge eating. Um, but we never tell people what to do and we never make demands. And, you know, over the course of six months, we run through many different lessons. And if somebody feels too resistant or too frightened or anything else to do one of the lessons or their house burned down and they're just not on the burns down and they're not on the internet for that entire week, that's okay. You can still use the 19 out of the 20 that you were there for or the 18 out of the 20 or the 17 out of 20. So... I think all of the skills are helpful. And so if somebody doesn't feel ready to take on all 20 of the skills, even if they take on two or three, I think it leaves them better off to have those two or three strengths. Absolutely. Um, do you think there's a point where you have to, I don't want to say like some people cannot be helped, but maybe like there are some people who just don't want to change. Uh, I'm assuming if someone is actually investing into working together with you, joining your coaching program, group coaching, then probably they don't fall into that category. But, you know, maybe you run down the list of things like, okay, what is something that you would enjoy doing instead of binging, like going for a walk, uh, watching your favorite TV show, taking a nap or something. And maybe someone eventually goes, you know what, like nothing gives me as much pleasure as, as binging. Like, I guess there is one point where you have to say like, look, I get that, but if you actually want to have a high quality life, like you have, we have to admit, right? Like this has to go. Um, so is there a point where you have to refer people out um, where it's like, okay, this is not working. Um, maybe you have to talk with someone specifically about your emotions. I don't know, a psychologist, something like that. Um, I do make referrals out for some specific situations. It's it tends to be on a case by case basis, but it wouldn't it wouldn't that would not be one of the situations because mm. we do often hear that mm -hmm. people say you know food is my favorite thing. Like yeah, I want to lose weight. I want to not be an emotional eater. I want to not binge eat anymore. But I I like it when I'm upset and I think oh yeah go play the piano or go for a walk and or eat cookies. The cookies win, and so that's. I love when people are that honest too, because <laughs> trying to sugar. And what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate that that's, you know, what they're noticing in that moment. I'm glad that they brought it up. What we can often talk about in that instance is the costs and benefits of different choices, because sometimes there's an immediate gratification or an immediate benefit that feels really good, but a penalty to pay later. It's the sort of credit card balance sort of thinking like, yeah, I just swiped this plastic card and they'll let me come out of the jewelry store with all this new bling. Mm. Like, awesome. <laughs> you know, immediately that choice feels really alluring. But then what happens when you get the bill? And then what if you can't pay the bill? And then what if you end up going into debt? And what if, you know, all these consequences start happening? So we can start thinking about each of our decisions as coming with a wide sort of package of outcomes. So if I choose to, you know, go put a million dollars worth of jewelry on a credit card and walk out, not that my credit limit is that high, <laughs> um, you know, I would think of, if I think of just the here and now, then it, it feels like the thing to do. But if I develop the practice of thinking about each of my choices in terms of what do I get down the road, what's in it for me next week, next year, that can really help kind of level the playing field and make us more open to trying different things. So maybe, you know, playing the piano doesn't sound that much fun, but if I think about playing the piano every day for a year and then finally being able to play the song I really wanted to be able to get good at and, you know, not having put lots of food into my body that my body didn't need, you know, there's a lot of good reasons that maybe you do want to try something different. It can also be a helpful you know, coaching tactic or something we can use with ourselves. 
to invite ourselves to do a test drive. Like, what if I just, for a week, tried doing this differently? Or for a night? Or just this one time, I want to be completely open-minded and see what happens if I choose door B instead of door A. Because often, we'll get surprised. It's normal in many senses, to continue the previous things that we've done, especially when we're distressed. We become not interested in novelty and all about our habits when we are in a distressed state. And of course, this is when the habits of binge eating and emotional eating come up. So we're not interested in trying something new then. So what we can do is, um, you know, recognize that, you know, I might be going to that thing just because it's habitual and maybe there's actually something good about doing this novelty. You know, maybe I have to try it to, to enjoy it. Maybe I don't anticipate enjoying it, but then once I actually go do it, I'll feel better. I think a lot of people use that to get themselves to go running, especially in the morning. It's like, uh, and it's just, I don't feel like I have the energy, but if I put my shoes on and I head out the door, the foot in the door. Yeah. Once I start moving, I'm going to realize I don't really want to stop and take the shoes off and come back inside. I think I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so that can be a helpful thing as well. Um, and then what I said about the distress making us more habit oriented, other than recognizing it, we can actually work with that to form the productive habits or the healthy, co the healthy coping behaviors when we're not super distressed. So this is sort of the behavioral equivalent of doing a fire drill. Because if you set the fire alarm off and pump a building full of smoke, people, people are going to be distressed and they might run in all sorts of weird directions. But if you, on a Tuesday afternoon, when people are calm, say, hey guys, we're going to practice the fire drill. Let's walk down the stairwell and go to the sign in the front yard you know, where we meet up. People say, oh, this is a waste of time. But after you've done that, when you distress somebody, they still know where to go. So in that sense, we have people practice things like um, playing a board game in the evening, opening up your book in the evening, you know, doing alternate types of entertaining activities so that when you feel distressed, you're more able to go to those things because they're not completely new and you've rehearsed them several times. No, wow, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm super glad that you had such a compelling response to this Um and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating because obviously it would be convenient if you you know you're a registered dietitian and you're an expert in nutrition. And it would be convenient if it was all about like yeah, this is what you do with your food, this is how you manipulate all of these things. But your scope has to expand because you know where you're dealing with people. And um, yeah, it's really cool to see that yours uh, has expanded to such a degree. Um, and um, yeah, honestly, it was awesome to hear uh, everything you shared here. So um, conveniently for us, we're just coming up on the hour mark. So we didn't get to talk about all of the things that I wrote down for myself here. Uh, but I think this was a very productive discussion. So thank you so much for everything that you shared here. So please, um, you know, let people know where can they read and listen and watch more stuff from you like this. And if they like what you heard from you, uh, where can they get more? Sure. Uh, my newest book, which I think has all the latest and greatest things I've done mm -hmm. in it, is called Give Yourself More. And it is geared, it's geared for women who have weight loss goals, but it's cleverly also quite helpful for men and people of any gender. So I hope that whoever's listening will be interested in checking it out. Of course, you can read a synopsis or sample on Amazon. But the gist of it is that instead of selling ourselves short and trying to limit things in our lives, avoid this, avoid that, um, it's about living our life in the sense of what we want to move toward and then going for those things. And so it encompasses nutrition, fitness, mental health, relationships, and other things that contribute to happiness. And I hope you'll check it out. It's called Give Yourself More. You can buy it uh, as ebook, paper, or audio from Audible. Awesome. All right, then I recommend everybody to check that one out. I have it uh, myself on my Kindle. And um, yeah, I have some chapters that I still have to go through, but I really liked what you read, uh, what I read so far. So um, yeah, awesome, Georgie. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work. And uh, hope we will chat again in the future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.